today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. baptism, again, as a special reference to that death of Christ, speaks of our dying to self. Through that act of baptism, as we go completely under the waters, we publicly proclaim that the old man has died. And as we rise from those waters, we affirm that we have already been born again by the Spirit of God. Again, it is symbolic in a physical sense of what's already taken place in a spiritual sense. And again, it's not the physical act of baptism, but using baptism as a picture or as a declaration of that. The ritual of baptism is a physical symbol of what happens to us when we give our lives to Christ. In today's message, Pastor David teaches us that when we are submerged in the water, it represents the death of our flesh and our old way of life. Then, when we reemerge out of the water, we show that we have been washed by the blood of Christ and have received the new birth that only comes from knowing Jesus. Pastor David points out that the act of baptism does not save us, but is merely a demonstration of our faith and a sign of obedience. Now here's Pastor David with part one of today's message, The Focus of the Gospel, from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. So in verse 15 of chapter 3 of verse Peter, we read, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having put or being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and he preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water." There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. In all of this, I believe that we can take this passage or the message today and Whereas last week we spoke about the hope of the gospel, this morning I want to talk about the focus of the gospel. And how that title fits into what we're speaking today may not really click until we get to the very end of the message, okay? 
But as we look at this, we look at the meaning of today's passage, we need to look at it in the context of what it's written and the application of all of it into our lives. And one of the first questions that we need to ask deals with that very beginning phrase in verse 21. There is also an anti-type. Now, if you've got the King James Version this morning, yours reads, the like figure. If you've got a new revised standard version, you read baptism, which this prefigured. The English standard version, which is a great version, by the way, again, just the layout and the translation of it. The English standard version says baptism, which corresponds to this. Well, they all take from the same Greek word that when translated into Latin and then translated into English is where we get our word antitype. So the question is, what's an antitype? What is an antitype? We all know what antivenom is, right? Okay. You get bit by a snake, you need some antivenom right away, don't you? We know what antisocial is too, don't we? Some of uh, some people we know are antisocial. They just don't like hanging around with people. Well, is that what he's speaking about here? Usually when we see the prefix of anti, it means against or uh, uh, away from. And yet that's actually the opposite meaning that it has here. Biblically speaking, an antitype is a person, a thing, or an event that's been foreshadowed. It's been identified with or represented by an earlier symbol or type. So there is the type, which is the foreshadowing of the fulfillment, which is the anti-type. Such as characters or events that are in the New Testament are the anti-type, while as the symbol, the shadow, the forerunner of it is the type that we find In the Old Testament, type, again, being the foreshadow or the fulfillment of the anti-type. The Old Testament type followed by the New Testament anti-type. Does it click for you yet? There's a lot of areas within the scripture that we see this thing. And it's kind of fun, actually, when you start looking at these as you're doing your, your Bible studies to look in the Old Testament and see where the type is and then see the fulfillment of the antitype in the New Testament. One of those we see Paul writing in the book of Romans speaks about Adam being the type and yet Christ being the Antitype. Christ is the fulfillment of what, again, the foreshadowing of what Adam was. Paul speaks about that in the book of Romans. In Genesis chapter 2, we read the story of Abraham who had a son by the name of Isaac. And remember, God came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son. Now, wait a minute. Didn't Abraham have another son? But in God's eyes, he says, take your only son, Isaac. And I want you to sacrifice him to me. Isaac then becomes the type of, again, the sacrifice of Christ, who we read in John 3, 16, the only begotten son 
of God. So the type being Isaac, the antitype being Christ. Also in Genesis chapter 28, we read the story of Jacob. And as Jacob is again in, in his travels, he sleeps and he has this dream of this ladder, this stairway that going up to heaven. And in that dream, he dreams of angels ascending and descending that ladder. And you look at that and say, well, what exactly does that all mean? We really don't see the fulfillment of it until we get into the New Testament. And in the New Testament, Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 1, as he's speaking to Nathaniel, he says, Nathaniel, from now on, you're going to see the very angels of God ascending and descending upon the very Son of Man. So in the Old Testament, the type was the vision that Jacob had of this ladder to heaven of the angels ascending and descending. In the New Testament now, the antitype becomes the reality of Christ who declares, no, I'm that connection point between heaven and earth. He is the antitype at that point. We also read the story in the Old Testament of Elijah, and yet in the New Testament, we read that Jesus points to Elijah as he's speaking about John the Baptist. And he says here in John the Baptist is really Elijah. Elijah being the type, John the Baptist being the antitype. Jesus, again, speaking in Luke chapter 11, and he says, just as Jonah was in the, the belly of that great fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the very belly of the earth, or be buried for three days and three nights. So who then is the type, church? Jonah. And who is the antitype? Christ, again. Now, here's one that's the trick question. Old Testament and New Testament, we read about the temple, the very place of worship for the Jews, the very presence of God in that holy of holies as they would go and they would offer their sacrifices, they would worship Jehovah, the one true God. And in all of that, we see both in the tabernacle uh, as, as the beginning of what eventually was built as the temple. Well, which is the temple, a type or an Antitype. It's a type. So where is the antitype? It's yet to come, isn't it? It's yet to come. Uh, even, even the fact that in, in heaven right now, it speaks of Jesus taking his own blood into the holy of holies, the one not made by human hands, but the one in the very presence of God. So again, we see this type, which is the physical temple, the antitype being the spiritual temple that's yet to come. So again, although type is used throughout scripture to present that analogy, a foreshadowing or a picture, one of the things that we need to understand by virtue of the fact that it is an analogy, by virtue of the fact that it's a shadow, you need to understand that types are imperfect symbols of the antitypes. And you get into trouble a lot of times when people try to make every facet of the type fit the anti-type. They can't completely or perfectly be compared with the reality or the fulfillment. Vic, if I were to hire someone to come and paint your portrait, and I would hire somebody very good and they would do an excellent job, what we would see in that portrait would be actually a type. And there may be imperfections of that, that that don't show everything of who you are and everything about you. You are the antitype. So that is the type 
You are the antitype in that case. And so in the same way, whenever Bible teachers or would-be Bible teachers go through the word and they see this type or an antitype type of picture, if they try to make everything of the type fit the antitype, then there's where many times we fall into wrong teachings. Not necessarily heretical teachings, although you certainly can go that way, but many times just the wrong teaching, the wrong understanding of what God is trying to say within his word. Now, the same holds true, I believe, here in verse 21. As Peter uses this historical account of of Noah and his family, they become for us then what, church? The type. And that clearly speaks of baptism then as being the anti-type. And yet I believe that Peter fully recognizes the limitations of even that parallel. The great theological difficulty. We see this difficulty and a problem in the interpretation of it. When either individuals come with a predetermined understanding or belief that one has to be baptized in order to be saved, or that baptism is a part of the work of salvation. Or, if someone comes and they don't have a full understanding of the the context of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, as well as the historical setting of Scripture. Now, if you don't have these things, then many times it's easy to be, again, misled in the interpretation and even the application for you. Uh, You come to either one of those frames of thought, either that baptism is used as a process or a part of our salvation, or that you don't have a full understanding of the biblical or the historical context of it, then you might believe that what Peter is saying here is, just as Noah and his family were saved by the waters of the flood... So the ordinance or the act of water baptism saves you, and it's necessary for your salvation or at least a part of your salvation. And the problem is, church, they're wrong on both parts. They begin with a wrong premise. They end up with a wrong conclusion. First of all, let me ask you, did the flood waters of Noah's day save Noah? No. Absolutely not. Actually, quite the opposite, isn't it? The water was the agent of of God's wrath that actually purged the world of the filth of the flesh. The waters of the flood destroyed everyone except Noah and his family before, before God allowed them, or as God allowed Noah and his family to pass through these waters. He allowed them to pass through the waters safely because Noah and his family were placed securely in the ark. They weren't saved by the waters, but they were saved through the waters because they had already entered in. They had entered into the safety of God's provision in their life. Noah and his family were saved through the water, but not by the water. And what Peter refers to here is that in the same way as the flood purged the world of sin through that destruction, then water baptism symbolizes that our lives were already purged from sin. Peter speaks about this physical illustration of a spiritual reality. 
because he's very quick to declare right here, right at, at that. He says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Peter well understood that there was no physical ritual that could save us, but only that spiritual reality of a new life in Christ. Our spiritual reality is, is that we come to the waters having already entered in to God's provision. By faith, we've already received Christ. We've already been born again, and we come to those baptismal waters with that already dealt with within our lives. We have already entered into the provision through faith in Christ before we come to those baptismal waters. Our baptism, again, is a special reference to that death of Christ, speaks of our dying to self. Through that act of baptism, as we go completely under the waters, we publicly proclaim that the old man has died. And as we rise from those waters, we affirm that we have already been born again by the Spirit of God. Again, it is symbolic in a physical sense of what's already taken place in a spiritual sense. And again, it's not the physical act of baptism, but using baptism as a picture or as a declaration of that. It's the very thought that the Apostle Paul had when Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul writes, How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Paul isn't speaking about the physical act of getting uh, wet, but Paul is speaking about the spiritual reality of what's taken place in our lives. He speaks about that spiritual death, that spiritual battle, or, or, or burial, and, and yet we, we remain physically alive, don't we? He says, I, I, I'm, I've died in Christ, but yet physically we're still here. The symbolic representation of our death our burial, and our resurrection in Christ through the ritual or the ceremony or the ordinance of baptism. To help us to understand a little bit better, it might be worthwhile for us to look again at Jewish tradition. And that's where history comes into play in, again, the interpretation and the application of Scripture into our life. Remember, as Peter is writing this, Peter writes this, who is, who is a man who is living uh, as, as, as a born-again Jew. He, he, he was raised as a Jew. He lives in a Jewish culture. He has the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish traditions all as a background to this. Christians were not the only ones, nor were they the first ones, to use baptism as a, as a symbol of, of spiritual renewal. Others had done it in the past. The Jews had for centuries done a very similar thing. For the Jew, the idea of baptism as being symbolic of what had already been done spiritually in their life is well documented. One article says that it's expressed uh, through a well-known passage in Josephus. And Josephus was a Jewish historian of the first century. And Josephus writing actually about John the Baptist. He writes these words that John, in speaking of John the Baptist, he says that the washing, speaking of the baptism, would be acceptable to him if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away of some sin, 
but for the purification of the body. Supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. So in other words, it's not the washing on the outside of the fleshly filth, but it's the work that had already been prior done within the spirit. We see that same understanding in the New Testament writings about John the Baptist. And in Matthew, we read how John the Baptist was was baptizing people there at the Jordan River. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they found out about that. And they thought, well, this is where we need to go. This is where the people are. We want to know what's going on. We want to be actively involved with that. And if you remember the story as the Pharisees and the Sadducees came down to be baptized, John the Baptist says, whoa, you brood of vipers. Who warned you about the wrath that's going to come? And then he said, now you go and you do works of righteousness first. Well, was John denying them the ability to get saved? He said, no, you can't get saved yet. You've got to earn your salvation. No, that's not the picture at all. What John was saying is these waters don't do anything if your heart's not changed first. Your heart has to be changed. Repentance needs to come. Faith in the Messiah needs to come first. And then we come to those waters as a symbol of what's already taken place within our lives. For the ancient Jew, one other thing you need to realize. For the ancient Jew, baptism meant immersion, full immersion within their communities, wherever there was a synagogue. They would always have to have what's called a mikvah a baptismal pool. And the size of the baptismal pool had to be sufficient enough for an adult male to be able to completely submerse himself within the waters. And wherever there was a synagogue, they had to have the mikvah. As a matter of fact, today, you can go around Israel and in the ancient ruins, you see the mikvahs everywhere. Even on the top of Masada, that, that, uh, that Roman stronghold, once the Jewish rebels defeated the Roman garrison that was holding Masada, one of the first things that they did was break in and, and build themselves a mikvah there, a baptismal pool. And again, the size of it wasn't for just the pouring of water or the sprinkling of water, but that a, a full-grown adult could get in and completely submerse themselves. And as a convert to Judaism, that ceremonial mikvah was all about signifying that you had already been given a new life of blessings and responsibilities within the Jewish community. And in biblical times, it demonstrated through obedience that a person was already spiritually clean and eligible for the full privileges and the services within the nation of Israel. And the individual was then completely immersed under water. Immersion itself had nothing to do with the salvation of the person. They went through the ceremony because repentance and commitment had already been declared. That's why even today, it's after your repentance from sin, a turning away from sin, followed by that commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that you need to be baptized. We don't do it beforehand. We don't believe in in, in infant baptism here. We believe that this is something that, that takes place as an, as either as a young person makes a commitment to Christ or as an older person makes a commitment to Christ. It's at that point after that commitment to Christ that we baptize. Baptism, I believe, is very clear in Scripture that after you come to faith in Jesus Christ, 
you should be baptized. And I believe that the word is very clear that that baptism should be by full immersion. Well, why full immersion? What does baptism represent? It represents the fact that we have died. We have died to self. Thanks for tuning in today for Pastor David Landry's verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Peter here on The Open Word. We are glad we're able to bring you these teachings straight from God's Word, but we're even more glad you chose to spend time with us today. We love hearing from our listeners, so please give us a call if you have a moment. Our phone number here is 520-836-9676. That's 520-836-9676. Let us know, too, how we can be praying for you. Are you a part of a local church? Joining and actively getting involved in a local body of believers is a great way to grow in your faith. It's a place where you can learn about the power and love of the Savior and ask questions among other imperfect seeking people. You'll find support in times of need and be able to offer help to others in your own unique way. If you have yet to find a local church in your area, we'd encourage you to start looking today. And if you're in the Casa Grande area, Pastor David has a special invitation for you. Hey, thanks, Chris. You know, I'd like to personally invite you to join us here at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande for a time of worship, fellowship, and studying the Word of God. We meet every Sunday at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock in the morning, as well as Wednesday evening and Saturday evening at 6.30. You can find our address and directions by visiting theopenword.com and following the links to our church page. I look forward to meeting you in person and sharing this journey of faith with you. Thanks, Pastor David. Join us next time for another edition of The Open Word.